James Bible Study, Part 14, On Prayer For lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from James, Chapter 5, Verses 13 through 18 Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. St. James has given his second praise and exhortation toward the virtue of steadfastness. Yet unlike a Stoic philosopher, who exercises steadfastness for its own sake or for no reason at all, the author highlights it as a means by which the saints are called blessed. Despite all persecution, trial, and suffering, the steadfast one remains faithful to our Lord, and thus is commended by Scripture and all other believers. Yet what is the means by which the believer is made steadfast? How shall someone endure the tribulations we face today? St. James answers this question primarily with individual and group prayer. Prayer is the air which the Christian breathes, and it has immense power which God uses to bestow grace upon the one praying. One might say that, like marriage, it is not a sacrament, but has a sacramental nature, one that is grace-bestowing to it. While there are two more verses which will be addressed in the next lesson, this passage is the general conclusion to the epistle. Verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. In bad times and good, the believer is to pray. We are to speak to God and make petition whether we are in pain or in high spirits. Though praising God is commendable as an expression of gratitude, it is also a protection against the complacency which prosperity may bring. During times of trial, we must pray. If we do not, then we are likely to either attempt to fix the situation by our own power, and thus lead ourselves into frustration, or we may sin in response to our pain, and thus displease God. He tells us to call upon him in the day of trouble, Psalm 50, verse 15. And this means prayer. God does not answer unprayed prayers, but he rejoices to respond to the one who reaches out to him in faith. During times of plenty, we must pray. 
If we do not, then we are likely to become lazy, indulgent, self-congratulatory, and proud, all of which shall incur our Lord's wrath, from Psalm 138, verse 6, Proverbs 29, verse 23, and James 4, verse 6. The man in plenty must certainly express his gratitude toward our Lord, but also mercy, that God may protect his heart from slipping away into pride. St. James brings up prayer in all situations after having extolled the virtue of steadfastness, demonstrating the essential quality of prayer for attaining such virtue. Verses 14 and 15 say, Is any one among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This passage is considered the basis for the rite of extreme unction, which was developed by the Roman Catholic Church with the intent of obeying this passage. St. James commands that if any are sick, the anointing with oil by elders accompanies the prayer for healing and forgiveness. However, the idea that extreme unction is a sacrament, as Rome teaches, is not true. In order for a particular rite to be a sacrament, that which by its nature confers grace, holiness, and salvation onto he who receives it by faith, there must be two distinct elements, the command of God to do this rite with its physical element, and the promise of grace added to the rite, that is, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Anointing of the sick does not necessarily carry the promise of eternal life. It is not the oil, the physical element, which saves, but the prayer of faith, that is, the faith of the believer and the intercession for faith made by the elders. With the writer's command, we have the former element, but not the latter, or a sacrament. Again, it is not the anointing which saves, but the believer's faith. With baptism, the Lord's Supper, and absolution, however, we see the act itself as being efficacious unto salvation for the one who receives it in faith. It becomes a vehicle of salvific grace to be conferred onto the believer. Nonetheless, while anointing the sick and dying is a commendable act on the part of elders for their congregation, it is part of St. James's overall point regarding prayer. Prayer is not solely for the individual to exercise. Using anointing of the sick and prayer for them as an example, it is clear that St. James wants believers praying for each other and in the presence of one another. We are to pray for one another and intercede for one another in prayer, especially as it pertains to our afflictions. In this way, we help bear one another's burdens, per Galatians 6, verse 2. Verse 16, the first half, says, Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. Healing is not just physical. The conscience may also be healed as absolution is pronounced, 
upon he who confesses. This is a spiritual healing which removes guilt, shame, and unrighteousness, per 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9. Thus he who confesses his sins to a fellow believer and hears the words of absolution in response is participating in a sacrament. It has the command of God, confess your sins to one another, and the promise of his grace, that you may be healed. It is from the first half of James 5 verse 16 that we have a direct basis for the rite of confession. Interestingly enough, and counter to the claims of various denominational bodies, this is not a rite restricted to the clergy alone. The author does not write, confess your sins to a priest, but to one another. While confession and absolution is a responsibility typically assigned to the pastorate, in deference to the universal priesthood of all believers, it is a power even of the layman. The Apology of the Augsburg Confession makes an important point, though, that this is a reflexive exercise between brothers in the faith. The Reformers write, Perhaps someone may also cite James 5.16, Confess your faults one to another. But here the reference is not to confession that is to be made to the priests, but in general, concerning the reconciliation of brethren to each other, for it commands that the confession be mutual. End quote. This is most certainly true. As it is beneficial for good order in the church, all rites are to normally be exercised by the pastorate, the diaconate, and those whom they assign to assist them in such duties. However, just as a layman has the right to perform baptism and consecrate the elements in the Eucharist during abnormal or emergency situations, and heads of household, being the priests of their families, retain these rites in toto, so too does the laity have the right to absolve. However, we would argue that St. James's direct command being to all Christians, not just the leadership, means that believers should mutually confess their sins to one another more frequently than the emergency-only exercise of baptism or the Lord's Supper. We are convinced the absolution offered by a fellow believer is efficacious, though it should never replace nor stop the normative confession and absolution, both private and corporate, offered in the divine service. Note again the reciprocal nature of the confession which St. James commands. If the healing is real healing, spiritually first and potentially physical, one must come away with the impression that he means this clause expansively. We confess our sins one to another as a means of true repentance and receiving forgiveness from our Lord. The layman, hearing confession from his brother, has every right to say, Our Lord Jesus has died for that sin, and indeed all your sins. Upon hearing this, I declare unto you that you are forgiven, washed clean in his blood. Yet more confessing our sins to one another expands to the confession of those sins that we commit against one another. It is altogether predictable that Christians will inevitably harm one another. We are to apologize, forgive, make amends, 
and heal relationships. Should the body of Christ appear torn asunder by the wounds which believers inflict upon each other, apologies and forgiveness are to be given freely, lest these wounds fester. Now verse 16, second half, to verse 18, says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Earlier in the epistle, James 4, verses 2 and 3, St. James writes, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. If God refuses prayers that are prayed wrongly, then what is a prayer that is asked rightly? The author points to Elijah as our example for this, the prophet who prayed in accordance with God's word and will. Speaking to King Ahab, he pronounces a drought and then prays for it while waiting by the brook Kerith. This continued until after the kingdom of Israel repented of their Baal worship, 1 Kings 17 and 18. Here, Elijah's prayers do not reflect a simple desire to punish his own people. Instead, he prays as the word of God declares in the Deuteronomic Covenant, the law, which promises rain and fertile ground for obedience, but drought and famine for disobedience. In other words, the prophet prayed according to the scriptures, praying for one thing according to the Israelites' rebellion, and for another according to their repentance. The Christian does well if, in their prayer, he goes by the revealed will of God in his word. However, we are not to understand this as being so restrictive that we can only pray Bible verses or something. If one needs a new car, for instance, it would be foolish to refuse to pray for one on the basis that cars are not in the Bible. To the contrary, if we understand that the Ten Commandments restrain us from praying for something sinful or fleshly, and if we rejoice in God's good will for us, then we have the right to still pray freely and expansively for all which he has shown us. This is to say, the law of liberty permits the Christian to pray according to law and gospel. We pray for well-being, for sustenance, for all that God graciously provides. We pray for faith in others, because he wills that all should be saved. We pray against our sins and the sins of friend and foe, because God hates sin and desires repentance. In a word, we pray with the freedom to seek what our Lord says is good. This kind of petition is heard from on high the same way Elijah's prayers were heard.